Good to hear the chatter in the room for sure. Good to hear all the chatter. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. If you want to make your way in that direction as we continue our series through uh, the parables, the stories, of, uh, the stories that make us. Um, one of the things that I love about the commissionings we do for our, our high school and our, our college grads or, or tech grads or you know, different, different transition milestone moments is in that box, particularly for those that are, that are leaving, geographically relocating, in that box are... Um, church recommendations for where they're going, uh, a resource. But the thing that I love most is there's actually people in this church that said, I'm committed to pray for that person for the next year, which is really neat. And so we just want you to know that you have people that are praying for you, that care about you, and your, 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 your church, uh, your sending church is always here for you. All right, well, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer, if I haven't met you yet. Before we dive into this text, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a stunning thing that you would speak to us. What a, what a deep kindness. In a world full of so much information, so much noise, some of it so good, a lot of it really confusing and so much of it contradicting. We think that you speak clearly, you speak accurately, you speak to challenge us for sure, you speak to comfort us, you speak to build us up even where your word comes and first might tear us down, it's always for the purpose of our growth and our flourishing and your glory. It's a remarkable thing that we get to do as we gather, as we, as we, we sang that you are holy, 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 and the cherubim and the seraphim, they fall down before you. These angelic beings, these fiery ones, in your presence they fall down. That's the sort of posture I'm asking you'd grant us through the Spirit as we come to this text, which is not an easy text. Would you grant us a, a, a loneness before it? We can understand the words that are on the page intellectually, but we cannot believe them and we cannot do anything with them. We can't live in light of them apart from your divine intervention through the Spirit. And so we ask that you would send the Spirit in each and every one of our hearts to be able to, to be primed and tuned to hear your voice. What every single person needs in this room more than anything else, whether they have walked with you for just a few days, whether they've been a Christian for, for 87 years, whether they're here and they're not sure why they're here or they got drug here or they just showed up here and they don't even know who you are, what all of us need more than anything else is that we would leave this time more impressed with Jesus more confident in what he's done, more full of hope and joy with all that he promises to do. So we ask that the Spirit would come and lift Christ up and draw our hearts after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 16 Verse 19 through 31, this is God's holy, holy word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Feel free to grab a seat. Luke 16 begins the chapter with another parable. It's a parable on on stewardship. How are we to use our resources and wealth in this world? And then it culminates with a a, a summary statement from Christ that that begins to give kind of a punchline to why he told that story. He says this in verse uh, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Then Jesus goes on and he's talking to the immediate audience that's right there, the people that he's most directly speaking to, the Pharisees. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, you are those who would justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We have to hear the parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus in light of the context of this chapter. It's not primarily a story about heaven and hell. It's primarily a story about money and specifically the blinding power of greed. Heaven and hell serve to amplify the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about and to sound an alarm for all of us to do some self-examination. The most direct audience, as I said, were this group of Pharisees who were lovers of money. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee with our 2023 sensibilities, we hear it as a curse word, as an insult, but it would not have been 2,000 years ago. These were upright, moral, respected individuals that were, were Bible people. They knew Moses and the prophets, as this text begins to allude to. They, they would have been orthodox in their belief. They would have had right beliefs and understandings. They, they, they were people that would have, they, they, they were good church people. The character in the story that represents the Pharisees is the rich man who is in Hades. Do you see the connection? 
Don't miss what's being said here. Those that presumed a future heaven can receive a future hell. I know that's alarming. So I've been sitting with this text for the entire week. It is very alarming. What Jesus is saying to this group of people, and and by way of saying it to them, is saying it to us, is that we can be so blinded by greed that we might be spiritually dead and not even know it. The rich man believed himself to be a son of, of Abraham. What that meant was Abraham was the father of God's people. He, he, he thought he was part of the, the clan, part of the club, part of the, the tribe. But his final destination shows that it was a delusion. This last little statement of this appeal, would you send someone back from the dead? Maybe Lazarus, who's died. Would you send him, him back to my five brothers? And Abraham's response, if they have Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to that, they're not going to listen to someone, even if they come back from the dead. saying, you know your Bibles. And, and the point of that is this, is that if you go back to the Bible, what you see consistently is one of the big grand meta arcs of the Bible is God really cares about the broken and the outcast. You have to willfully look over it to miss it. They knew better. That's what Jesus said. You knew better and you didn't care. I really try to get a picture of this story. This rich man clothed in fine linen and, and purple. The, the reason that became the, the color of royalty, it was very rare and very expensive. It had to be made from shells that were found only in this certain area of marine life. And so it was a distance to find it, to get it, to manufacture it. And so only those that were very wealthy could actually afford to, to, to have that type of clothing, that color. He feasts sumptuously every single day. And outside of his gate, and the, the word for gate here is not like what a lot of us might have on like our side yards, kind of like a, an old gate, rickety gate that barely opens or closes. This type of, of gate would have, would have been something like outside of a, of a palace or an estate. And outside of that gate is Lazarus, who's been laying there. He's laid there. The, the word for laid means to be cast out or to be thrown This impoverished, malnourished, very sick man has been discarded at the opulent gate of a very rich man who, by the way, knows he's there, knows Lazarus, because in in this story, he he sees him in this chasm, in this, this distance, and he knows his name, knows him enough to know his his name. And Lazarus, he's longing to eat the, the scraps, the crumbs that, that, that fall from the rich man's table. And the language here, the, the kind of the, the customer cultural practice, one of the things I was surprised to find this week is that this probably wasn't food that just accidentally got dropped. The, the wealthy would often use bread as a sort of napkin. They would take the bread and wipe their hands and then throw it upon the ground. It's a really desperate scene. The dogs that come to lick his sores are likely not pets. They're likely scavengers. And Lazarus is so malnourished and, and so, is so sick that he, he can't push them away. Someone who has all the resources to help and need right in front of him, and he does nothing. 
Peter Gurry says it like this, the most important lesson this parable teaches is a warning about money. Wealth calcified the rich man's heart. Though wealth doesn't always have this effect, who can deny that it often does? As many have realized, either we will own our money or it will own us. A heart unwilling to help others because it might be risky or they might not deserve it or it might cost us too much is a heart unwilling to recognize the desperate help we ourselves need from God. And the stakes couldn't be higher since heaven and hell hang in the balance. If it's your first time at Redeemer, welcome. Um, hang with me. We're going we're gonna to navigate through and really we're going to come back to what, what Peter Gurry said. But to alarm his listeners, um, and as Jesus shows the outcome of a calcified heart, he shows the, the deep urgency of this present moment. It's important to remember that this is a parable. We don't derive our our doctrine from, from parables or stories. We don't want to go into every single detail and, and get all the answers that we might be curious about, like, can you actually see heaven from hell? Like, what does this look like? Is, do we have angels that come get us when we die and they take us some, someplace? That we, we want to get our, our doctrine from other places in the Bible, and these stories often illustrate. They try to make a truth land on us in a, in a, in a big and, and profound way. Um, but there are a few significant points that we can draw from this parable, and the ones that I'm sharing, I believe, are taught clearly and supported in other parts of the Bible. One of them is this. There are drastically different futures for different people. And we talk about death as the great equalizer, and in one way it is. We all face it. But the outcomes can be drastically different. Tim Keller, if you've been around this church for any amount of time, I quote him probably at least twice every sermon, and I will today. Um, a pastor who passed away actually recently, probably one of the most influential people in my life, um, says this when he's asked about what he believes about hell. He says, well, one thing I believe is probably the biblical imagery of hellfire is metaphorical. And when people hear that, he says, most people go, oh, that's a relief. And then he goes on and says this, it's metaphorical for something probably infinitely worse than fire. Words like torment and, and anguish and this plea for mercy and this longing to, to just have Lazarus just put a, put a drop of water on his tongue. Whatever they represent, whether they are literal or metaphorical, all of these are saying this is really bad. Now, the horror of this text, drastically different ends. It's not just the horror of the text. There's also beauty in this text. You have this incredible reversal of Lazarus who, who is so sick and, and so broken and so hungry and so needy, and now in this picture of, of heaven is restored. His health is back. He's taken to the side of Abraham. The, the literal word is the bosom of Abraham, and, and the language here is that he was probably reclined at the side of a table feasting. It's this picture of this future feast to come, and, and Lazarus who had been discarded and stepped over is now next to Father Abraham in a position of honor. Tim Keller commenting on this in his book on death, anything wonderful or great in this world is only an echo or foretaste of what is present in infinitely greater depths in the vision of God and in the new heaven and new earth, the world of love. He's saying anything good, anything good here, it's just a little snack compared to what's coming. 
So when you look at the, the horrors of the rich man's experience and you look at the, the differentiation with Lazarus, I mean, you see why this is so urgent in the present. Verse 22 is sort of matter of fact. The poor man died. And then a few words, uh, words later, the rich man also died. They were alive. And then they're dead. And it's meant to be abrupt. It's meant to say there is a present urgency. That today is the day of salvation. We, you don't know, we don't presume upon tomorrow. I want you to hear that through the lens of remember the audience that Jesus was speaking to. He was talking to, to Pharisees. They was the most direct audience and through them, us who were lovers of money. He was trying to wake them up that they might not have the same fate as this rich man in the text. Sometimes we gotta agitate the comfortable so we don't have the same unbearable condition, the same unbearable experience. And, and, and really the heartbeat of God, if you read through the scriptures, what you'll find is the heartbeat of God is your salvation, not your suffering. God doesn't actually want us to get what we deserve, which is justice. He wants us to get what we can't earn, which is salvation and eternal life in him. And we see this throughout the Bible. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but, the, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. Or Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? O house of Israel. I mean, this sort of pleading is the, 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 the heartbeat of, of the story to, to those that thought they knew where they were going and thought they believed, but were, were so blinded by their greed, their hearts were calcified. And so he tells the story. And we actually see that same sensibility of God's great lavish compassion actually in this story. We see it with Abraham, who when, when, when the rich man cries out to him, he, he, he doesn't gloat. He doesn't mock. He actually says, oh, child. It's this incredible term of affection. There's no gloating over his fate. Oh, he finally got what he deserved. Good. The suffering of the rich man is intense. And it's, it's, it's unchangeable. There's one shot to get this right. Let me read verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The Bible in Hebrews 9 says it is appointed once for men to die and then they face judgment. Now, this is really important. It's why today is so urgent. The consequences of unbelief are unbearable and unchangeable. There are no second chances. 
Now, we may hear that through our, our, our modern sensibilities and say, that seems so unfair. This seems so harsh. But, but, but think about it like this. Let's say you go to a doctor. You're not feeling well. You schedule an appointment. You come in. You're sitting with your doctor, and she performs an examination and then orders a number of tests. You go and have those tests conducted, and then at some point after the, the labs run all of your numbers, everyone examines what needs to be examined, your doctor is called or informed. They send all the information, and, and, and they, it's clear what is actually causing your sickness. It's clear what's making you sick, and it's 100% curable. but let's say the doctor never tells you. The doctor never calls you. The doctor never alerts you. Oh, I know what's making you sick, and here's how you can be cured. We would demand it. We would, we would want that person, I don't know, disbarred, thrown out, so something bad. We would, we would want something bad happen to that. We would, we, we would then, we would sue that person. We, like, this would be such an unjust thing to do. Remember the audience. Jesus is saying, I know what makes you sick. And I know how you can be cured. Now, because this is so important, and we're going to move on to some other things, but because this is so important, stay here just, uh, just a minute longer. According to Pew Research, as of 2021, roughly 73% of Americans believe in a heaven. 62% believe in a hell. I was actually really surprised to hear both of those stats, particularly the second one, because it's not something we talk so much about as evidenced by the weight in the room and the awkwardness of this moment. Less than 1% think they're going to hell. Which when I heard that, I'm like, oh my goodness, who thinks they're going to hell and doesn't do something about it? 39% of Americans say that people who do not believe in God can go to heaven. 17% of Americans do not believe in any sort of afterlife at all. 58% of Christians believe many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. So there's all paths to God, many ways to God. Contrast that with this, 31% of American Christians believe that Jesus alone is the way to heaven. Now I could go on. But those stats and others are alarming because there's so much at stake and they do not agree with one another. This parable and the, the ability to pause and reflect on the life to come is actually a gift, as awkward as it feels. It gets us to pause and think about what happens when we die and specifically what determines what happens when we die. The fate of the rich man in this text, it's unchangeable, which is, which is frightening. But let me give you the other side of this. The condition of Lazarus is unchangeable, which is wonderful. He won't ever get kicked out. He won't ever lose his spot. He'll never be back at the gate of a rich man in pain and distress and hunger and wounded ever again. In the new creation, everything is restored and it's irrevocable. After the sermon, we're going to sing a song we've done just a few times as a church, um, one I really, really love called Heaven is in Our Sights. And, and it really captures this, this sense of you. We all in this moment live on the edge of eternity. It begins this way. It says, wake up to comfort. Receive the mercy of dawn. Witness the wonder of peace, the warmth of his love. 
Heaven is in our sights. Beauty beyond the skies. Look up. And then one of my favorite lines in the song says this, we will outshine the sunrise. We will outlast the moon. There's not a single mortal person in this entire room. Every single one of us will go on forever. And Jesus, in his mercy and kindness, in a very uncomfortable way, is trying to reset the bone. He's, he's trying to cause awareness to happen, particularly, and I want you to hear this, for those that are off, we often think of this as those who are far away from the church. He's saying this to people that were religious. Now, this parable has been really misused over, over the years. I hope I don't do that with it today. But one of the things it's done is to demonize the rich, that being rich inherently is just wicked. Or to push a sort of like works-based salvation. You know, if you're generous, then you can earn your spot in heaven. And like a way I could apply that is, hey, we're going to take a tithe and offering right now. As if we can earn our salvation. Some have even used it um, in... Liberation theology is a big category for this, but, but to teach a sort of salvation by poverty that simply by the nature of being poor or marginalized, it means you're in. I would suggest to you all those are very unhelpful and very unbiblical applications of this text. For one, Lazarus isn't the only one in heaven. Abraham's there. Abraham was the Jeff Bezos of the Old Testament. And Elon Musk and, you know, whoever else is like the top five on, you know, wealthiest billionaires, that was Abraham and he's there. He was the father of God's people. Rich does not keep you out of heaven. Poor does not get you into heaven. In the Bible, there are righteous and unrighteous rich. There are righteous and unrighteous impoverished people. The deciding factor, the deciding factor between heaven and hell isn't about rich or poor. It's not fundamentally about greed or generosity. So what is the deciding factor? Let me give you a framework and then I'll try to answer it clearly because it is of such importance. Let me quote Peter Gurry again. A heart unwilling to help others because it might be risky or they might not deserve it or it might cost us too much is a heart unwilling to recognize the desperate help we ourselves need from God. Let me remove that middle sentence and just read it this way. A heart unwilling to help others is a heart unwilling to recognize the desperate help we ourselves need from God. What kept the rich man out was not fundamentally his behavior and treatment of Lazarus as he didn't think he needed anything. Wealth has a tendency to do that, to make us feel self-important, to make us feel accomplished, to calcify our hearts in, in such a way that we don't see the hurt and distress around us because we don't think we have any hurt or distress that needs any help. We can buy our way out of most of our troubles. We think we can delay that thing which faces all of us, which is death and judgment. It distracts us. In many ways, this is the point that Jesus made earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and really what this is doing, this is like a, these are direct statements that feel like this story illustrates. Luke 6, 24 through 25, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
Like those don't sound like bad things. Having money, being well fed, laughing. Abraham's in heaven. Jesus is not condemning the the idea of financial prosperity. What he's saying is those who think they are morally accomplished, those who think they have it all together, those that think they have no need before a holy God, those that think they can perform their way into the kingdom to come, those that are just not even interested. It's a calcified heart that can feast in the presence of poverty and not care. What Jesus is doing is condemning the deification of riches as if it's a God. You cannot have God and money. And the rich man illustrates that. Now Luke 6, 20 through 21. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Let me amplify those verses a little bit from Matthew chapter five, another account of Christ's life, this gospel according to Matthew where he says, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for those are, is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know they are spiritually bankrupt before God. Those that know no matter how much money they have, no matter how many accomplishments they've done, no matter how many trophies, their resume, those that have nothing, those that just know before a holy God, all they bring is need. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they know they're not. Those who mourn, who mourn their sin, who mourn their hardness towards others, shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lazarus is physically what every single person in humanity is spiritually. whether you have a lot or a little or nothing. Desperate for the help of another, needy more than we can imagine. What we need is what Lazarus needed, help. Which wonderfully is actually what Lazarus' name means. God has helped me. He's the only figure actually in, the, in all of the parables that Jesus told that's actually named. It's the only figure that ever gets a name. God has helped. That which we despise, God names and befriends and brings near. We need help. The help the the rich man needed, the help the Pharisees needed, the help Lazarus needed, the help that Rob needs, the help that you all need is the ultimate help, which is what's given in the gospel, this story of good news of how God takes desperate, needy people and brings them near to to a future celebration. The ultimate expression of God's help for people spiritually impoverished is the gospel. Think again about this parable, and I can't read this without seeing the contrast with Christ. You have a, a wealthy man, a rich man, dressed in linen, covered in purple, the color of royalty, I can't help but think of Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords covered in a robe of righteousness that is grander and greater than any could be purchased or bought, but he doesn't stay in the mansion. He doesn't stay away from the gate. He actually comes from heaven to earth. He crosses. He doesn't just come and hand some tokens. He doesn't hand some crumbs through the bars of the gate. He, bring, he opens them and enters in and he is born in, uh, uh, he is born, he comes as a child. He wraps himself in humanity. He lays down his glory and he's born into obscurity. We live most of his life poor to a poor family in a poor town. 
And then he lived. He lived as we were meant to live. The story of the gospel is that he did what we couldn't do. He gave the help that we needed. He fulfilled all the commands. He upheld the covenant before God. The very thing that the sons of Abraham didn't do, Christ did. And then stripped even more naked, he went to a cross. To take the just judgment of our calcified hearts, not just toward the poor, but in so many other ways. And there on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved and and he clothed us in our our frailty and our brokenness. We're so anemic, we couldn't even brush the dogs away. And he did it all, he did it all. The Bible uses language like this, that Jesus, who was infinitely wealthy, for our sake he became poor so that in his poverty we might be rich. And I'm not talking financially, I'm talking spiritually that we've been given that which we cannot earn. Jesus exchanged the splendor of his infinitely better robe to wear our sins so that we might wear his infinitely better robe of righteousness. He went to the cross to take the judgment we deserve that we might receive the eternal life he purchased and he got up out of the tomb as a declaration that it has been paid in full for all who trust. I love how Philip Hughes says it. Our hell he made his that his heaven might be ours. How does this relate to money? Here's one way to know if you believe it. Here's one way to know if Jesus has your allegiance. Does he have your money? If you recognize the desperate help you have and need from God, I'll I'll include that that we have and that we need from God, there's no way that you can look at the distress of someone right in front of you and not be moved. Like, what's that look like? Like, what's the amount you give? And who do you do it for? And, and what's the appropriate way of doing it in a way that actually builds people up for their flourishing and doesn't enslave them or tear them down more? And all the complexities that come with caring for other people, the text does not say. The Bible for sure gives you handles on, but it doesn't get into the specifics. It just says, is this your heart? If you know that you were broken and poor and look what Christ did, how can you look at others and not flinch compassion? It's the same point that's made in 1 John, 1 John 3, 16 through 17. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Oh, Christ went to the cross, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, and listen to this question, how does God's love abide in him? That's the question. A heart touched by Jesus will result in a heart that is touched by the condition and the plight of others. And we're not saved by this, but what being saved in Christ does is it translates not just into a belief, but to an action. Not as a way of earning heaven, but as a mark of those that know that Jesus has earned it for them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this story is meant to afflict the comfortable. And I will tell you, spending a week studying a text, thinking about my, my death, thinking about eternity, thinking, thinking about the, the details of this text was unnerving. It for sure afflicted me and brought some, some needed conviction. But it's even deeper intent is this, to comfort the afflicted. It ends with us not knowing what happens to the five brothers. We don't know if they did what this little word in verse 30 says, that they repented. 
We don't know if they ever did, but that's the point. We don't need to know because the question isn't posed to them what happened to those five. It's what's posed to us. Will we? Jesus tells a story for that purpose, for the Pharisees that were there and for all of us who are here. I don't remember um, the first place where I heard this phrase used it um, a month or two ago, and I, couldn't, I can't find where I, I found it, but, but repentance is the door to safety. In our ears, this word repentance, it sounds like a, like a bad word, a, a shameful word, a, a, a tearful word, and it might be full of tears, but repentance it just means to turn back to that which is life, to turn away from that which is enslaving you and back to that which is, is life. It's a word that frees us to be honest and to self-examine. Maybe to look at this parable and see where we might find ourselves with callous hearts. Maybe who far too often have hoarded what we should have freely given. And I say that as the chief of sinners in the room. Maybe to repent of those that we have looked past or stepped over. And I want you to hear this, not first by giving more, but by believing more. Believing more of what we've been given in Christ. Believing more of our need before him. Believing more about the gospel. Because what will happen is that we could work on the will right now. We could, we could manipulate on the will and say, oh, look at the terrible result coming. Be generous. It's not what Christ is saying. He says, know that you're needy. Know that you need more than you can imagine. And that the abundant riches of Christ has provided it. I'll end with this. If you want your heart to melt, to be uncalcified, look at the grace given in the gospel. The rich man's eternity in this text is what we merit. Lazarus' joy and comfort is what we receive in Christ. Francis Chan in his book, Erasing Hell, says this. He says, hell is the backdrop that reveals the profound and unbelievable grace of the cross. It brings to light the enormity of our sin and therefore portrays the undeserved favor of God in full color. And the more we see that, the more we'll see all those around us that need mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your grace in many ways to apply a text like this. Might we hear it as the the words from a good physician who can both identify the sickness and in himself has provided the cure. Where money or any other so-called God has gripped our hearts more than you, God, grant us the grace to repent. Father, I, I don't pray that this text scares people into the kingdom. I pray that the beauty of the gospel would draw them and to see what we escape through faith and what we receive through faith, not through our works and not through our doing, would so tenderize our hearts that we would just go, I can't believe what I've been given in Jesus. And that would translate not just to open pocketbooks, but but open calendars and and open homes and, and just a generosity of spirit. Father, I do pray, and in, in, in this room, it would, it would be surprising if there was no one here that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and so I'm asking, God, 
that through the work of the Spirit, the reality is the eloquence of my words and the quality of music and the goodness of cookies, God, is not going to lead anyone to Christ. We need your Spirit to come. So we ask that you would do that this would truly be the day of their salvation. They would call out and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, whatever brand of sinner they are. And they would find company with the rest of us who have done that to say, welcome. Holy Spirit, might you do your work through this text in our lives for the glory of Christ, the good of our neighbors, and the comfort and assurance of our own souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We're going to respond. As